Once upon a time, there was a girl, a young girl, standing on the bank of a river. And she was standing there because she had a job to do. And she had kind of an unusual job. Her job was to act casual in what was literally a life and death situation. She was supposed to watch so carefully and yet it make it seem like she wasn't paying any attention at all. And it seemed like hours had gone by since her parents, in tears, had left her standing there. And when they left, she couldn't calm down. Her heart was racing. She couldn't stop the tears from coming. But as time passed, she began to calm down a little bit. It started to seem like maybe somehow this would turn out all right because she could see the, there's no current here. The thing wasn't just going to float away by itself. And actually, from where she was standing on the bank, it was almost impossible to see the basket floating there in the reeds. But it seemed like the moment she had that thought, she heard a sound, voices, women's voices, and they were getting closer. And a few moments later, the absolute worst thing that could have happened, happened. Those women walked up to the bank of the river, just a few yards upstream from where she was, and one of them waded down into the water. And it wasn't just any woman. It was the very daughter of the murdering king himself. You know this story, right? Yeah, you know this story because it's epic. Uh, because it's incredible, it's gripping, it's a story that's been around forever, and people all over the world are still telling it and retelling it and making movies about it and watching movies about it because it's an incredible story, and it's a true story that actually happened. It's, it's the part of the story that happens in Exodus chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today as we continue this series, looking at the, the opening chapters of Exodus. We call the series The Way Out. And so you're going to want to have Exodus chapter 2 in front of you. What we're going to do today is walk through that story, okay? So you'll want to have it in front of you. We'll kind of bounce in and out of Exodus 2 as we go along. And as we do that, listen, if you remember anything, from what I say, from what we talk about this morning, remember the story, okay? Remember that part of what we look at. Remember the story and specifically see the God who is behind the story and remember what he's like. That's what I want you to have your eyes open to is who is the God who's behind this story and what is he like? So here's what we'll do to try and get at that today. First, we're going to look at that story in Exodus 2. And what I want to do is just try and help you understand the story, a story that's familiar to you. You've heard it before. And hopefully, you've read it just, just a couple weeks ago as you're doing the live it out. So you read Exodus chapter 2 a couple weeks ago as we were getting started. Maybe that raised some questions for you. We're going to dig into a little bit of that today. And then after we've looked at the story, I just want to give you three um, so what's. Like, okay, that's this, this story that happened, and we see what God is like in it, okay, but now so what? What does it mean for me as a follower of Jesus today? So that's where we're going to head together, all right? Um, I didn't introduce myself. My name's Tim. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Two Rivers, and I'm glad we get to jump into this uh, today, whether we're, you're here in this room or another campus, um, out in Bearden or Roan County or down the hall, um, we're going to dig into God's Word together today, today, all right? You ready? All right, let's go for it. Okay, so... Um, the big idea as we look at this story, as we go, okay, what are we going to see as we look at Exodus chapter 2? What I think you'll see is this, that God's rescue story 
is always ahead of the opposition. You're going to notice some details in here that are going to make it very clear. As you've been reading Exodus, you've seen this. God's rescue story, the thing he's working on, he's always got a head start because he's writing the story. And because of that, he's always ahead of the opposition. Last week, we looked at this idea that God's story unfolds in a world where there is, in a world that's directly opposed to God's people, to what God is doing in his story. I mean, we, we understand that, there are, that there, are, there are spiritual forces opposed to God and they are at work in the world around us. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we face opposition, but also we see that God is always, his rescue story is always ahead of the opposition. So a little context for where we are in the story, just to catch you up. The descendants of Jacob are in Egypt. Remember, Joseph went there. Now a new king has come. The king is threatened. It's hundreds of years later after Joseph. The king is threatened by the people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. And so he's trying to subdue them. He puts them in slavery. He tries these different things. And then last week, we got to this sort of cliffhanger ending to the story. Remember what it was? It was that Pharaoh gave this decree. He gave this command that among the Hebrews, every boy that was born was to be cast into the, into the Nile. They're going to be killed. All the baby boys are to be killed, and that's where the story ends. What are they going to do? What's going to become of the people of God, the people of Israel? Will they be wiped out? And that's where the story picks, out in Exodus, picks up in Exodus chapter 2. So look at verse 1. We'll start there. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. You can already see that there's a surprising start to this story. Like, the the one thing you don't want is to have a baby boy, because they're the ones who are going to be put to death. And the next part of the story, a little baby boy is born. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done with him. So you start this story and you already see that God has something in the works. Pharaoh has made his decree, but God has something he's working on, and so a baby is born. And as you read through this beginning part of Exodus 2, there are a couple of things that you might miss as we read it translated into English. A couple of of things I just want to draw your attention to. One is this. In verse 2, you notice it says, when she saw that he was a fine child. And when I read that, I go, what's that about? Why is it that she says, oh, he's a fine child? And because he's a fine child, it seems like it's because he's a fine child, then she decides to hide him three months. Like if he had had it all squished up head when he was born or something, that she would have been like, okay, I'm going to throw him in the river. That obviously isn't what would have happened. So we go, what else is going on here? There must be something more. A couple things it could be. I mean, one thing that could be about one possibility is, remember, um, uh, our tradition teaches us that Moses is the one who was writing this story down. So it could be that when, as Moses was writing the story, he got to this point and he wrote something like, and when she saw that he was a fine, ridiculously good-looking child, you know, maybe it was just, and the Holy Spirit taps him on the shoulders like, no, 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 you, you, can't, you can't write that, Moses. And so he just wrote fine, you know, he's fine. fine. Um, but really the word, the word means good. That's what the, the Hebrew word means good. What that sentence really says is, when she saw that he was good. Now, do you remember anywhere in the story, not in Exodus, but this is all one big story, so go back into Genesis. Do you remember a time when something was just declared as it was good, right? Way back in Genesis 1, at the very start of the story, as God's creating, each day he looks at his creation, and he says, it was good. 
And then he looks at humans and says it was, they were very good. His creation was very good. There's this idea that there's this, this, this hint in here, this, this signpost pointing back that God is still working on the very same project that he began in the Garden of Eden thousands of years before this. This idea that God was creating humanity, that he would have a people who live in relationship with him, and they don't just hang out together, but they work on a project together, that they were made to fill the earth and subdue it, that God was going to reign over the earth, and he was going to do that through his created human beings who would, were made in his image and would reign in his place on earth. That's the way God intended it to be, but humans screwed it up then, and they keep screwing it up all along the way. And God keeps going, I'm not done with this project. And so he begins again in Noah, and he begins again in Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. And now here we are, and God says, I'm beginning again now in the people of Israel through Moses. So something big is starting again here. God is always working ahead of the opposition. This isn't something he just came up with. He's been working on it. So verse 3 then says that she hid him in a basket. This is another thing that you just might want to be aware of as you read this story. That word for basket um, is a Hebrew word that generally is used to refer to a container, generally. A box. Sometimes a casket, because a casket is a box. It's actually only used, it's used in, in ancient Hebrew, it's only used in the Bible in one, uh, to refer to one other object. In the whole Old Testament, in all the Bible, that same Hebrew word that's translated basket here is, referred, is used to re- refer to one other object. Another object that was built to float on water that was covered in tar so that it would float. The other way it's translated is ark. So Noah is placed in a basket a box, an ark to float on the water so that he would survive when death was coming for him. It's just that story of Noah being echoed again here. And that's what God is doing because he's telling an unfolding story. And so there are themes and and hints that run through it. What you see as you look at the story is that Moses's path ends up being the path that the people of Israel take. If you've been doing the live it out, you've been reading what's happening in Exodus, you're way ahead of this part of the story. And in this coming week now, the people are going to leave Egypt. That's what's coming next. And you're going to see that, that Moses' story in Exodus 2 really echoes what's happening to, to the people of Israel later on. That just as Moses is placed in the water and passes through the water among the reeds, And then you'll see at the end of this chapter, then he goes off to the east into the wilderness, into Midian. Same thing happens to the people of Israel. They pass through the water, through the sea of reeds. They pass through the water and then on into the wilderness where they will wander in the desert. So you see Moses' story unfolding and hinting at what's to come for them. And what's incredible about what God does is he always works in surprising ways. He can do that because it's his story, and he works in ways you just would never guess. I mean, think about what's happening here. Moses is born. He's suppo- the idea is to keep him out of sight of Pharaoh, right? So this little baby boy doesn't die. Get him out of the sight of Pharaoh, and what happens? He ends up in what seems like the absolute worst possible situation. Not only does he end up where Pharaoh can see him, he ends up in 
Pharaoh's actual household. That's how God delivers him. That's how God raises up Moses. This is how he saves him, is by putting him in what seems like the most dangerous place. Only God could find a way to do that. So you know how the story works. Um, they, Moses' mother puts him in the basket, puts him in the water. His sister stands there to watch, and the, the women come along, and the uh, daughter of Pharaoh goes down into the water, and she sees the basket floating, and she goes and opens it up, and there's a three-month-old baby crying inside, and so she takes the baby out, and just then, God has provided. Moses' sister is standing right there, and she says, I bet you need somebody to nurse that baby, don't you? Yes, I do. Oh, I bet I can find somebody for you. So she goes and gets Moses' mother. So God has worked it all out. He's working ahead of the opposition so that when this baby is in the worst possible situation, they've actually followed through on what Pharaoh said to do. They have cast him into the Nile in a basket, but instead of him dying, now he's alive. And instead of him being alive and lost somewhere, he comes back into their home and his mother gets to raise him for those early months and years of his life. Until he is weaned, she gets to raise him. God just, he, he can do these incredible things. He's, he's working ahead of the opposition. He always has a head start because he's writing the story and he knows his enemies every move. And so now not only is Moses' mom raising Moses, she's getting paid to do it. That's what it says there. She gets wages for it. She's getting paid to do it. God can, only God can do this. But it won't last. God is working on something bigger. And so Moses still has to go. And so off to the house of Pharaoh he goes. It says that after he's weaned, Pharaoh's daughter takes, her, takes Moses as her own son. He becomes her son, and she names him Moses. And then there's a break in the action. Verse 11, we pick up again. One day, it's a story. So now we, we have, okay, this is how, ba- how baby Moses survived. And then we have a new part of the story. Verse 11, one day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And that's when you cue the music, the theme song from Law and Order, because another episode's starting. You know, it's like, this is straight out of Dateline NBC or something. Um, it's like he's, he comes out, he sees this, this guy's beating his, his, his people, his people, the Hebrews. The word really is his brothers. And he sees that happening. He looks this way, he looks that way. He kills the guy, and then he buries the body in the sand. This is a crazy story, and it just happens in a couple verses. Then, you know, the next day he goes out again. He goes back out among his people. Maybe he's thinking, you know, hey, I know how to help these people now. He goes out back among them, and two of the Hebrews are fighting amongst themselves. He tries to break it up. You know, why are you hitting this guy? What are you doing? And the guy says to him, basically, you're not the boss of me. You know, you're not, you're not, who put you in charge? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when he says that, Moses knows, as careful as he tried to be, looking this way and that, hiding the body in the sand, somehow the word has gotten out. And if it's gotten out to these guys, he knows how rumors spread. If it's gotten out to these guys, it's going to get out to everyone. And that's exactly what happens. Pharaoh hears about it and he wants to kill Moses. So some people go, well, how did all this work? Like, did Moses know when he was growing up that he was an Israelite or did he think he was an Egyptian? 
I mean, obviously his, his mother, who was raising him, the daughter of Pharaoh, she knew the, the reality. What about her dad, Pharaoh? Did he know? I think from this part of the story, it seems like they all knew. It seems like Moses knew. He goes out to his people, to his brothers. He goes out and looks upon their suffering. That's what Moses does. He seems to know that they are his people. And Pharaoh decides to ki- that he wants to kill Moses after this. And you would think that if he's the prince of Egypt, you know, if he's the grandson of the Pharaoh, if he kills a guy, a, uh, uh, an Egyptian um, taskmaster who was getting out of line, okay, maybe you slap him on the wrist, but you don't kill the grandson of Pharaoh for doing something like that. He can probably do whatever he wants. But if Pharaoh knew that this little boy who was being raised in his house was actually one of them, and he was waiting to see which side is he going to choose. And then he looks and he goes, okay, Moses, you've chosen. You're going with those people, the people of your birth. You're not staying with us? That's fine. But if that's the case, you're not going to live. And so Pharaoh sets out to kill Moses, and Moses is in deathly danger again. So Moses has to flee. Um, He's made his choice. Grandpa Pharaoh knows whose side he's on. He's got to leave town. So he flees east out into the wilderness to a place called Midian, the land of the Midianites. We don't know exactly the defined borders of that. It seems like it wasn't perfectly defined, but it would be somewhere east of Egypt, out of the country, in the northern part of the Arabian Peninsula, where Saudi Saudi Arabia is. The northern part of the Arabian Peninsula, that's probably where he goes. And he gets out into the wilderness. And the story tells us, Exodus 2 tells us, There he finds a well, and he sits down at the well. Now, if you remember back to a year ago, as we were reading through Genesis together, you might remember, certainly the readers of this would remember, there's something that always seems to happen in this story. Some guy goes far off from home, and he finds a well, and he sits down by the well, and the same thing always happens. He finds a wife. Do you remember that? (laughs) It always... I don't know why. There's maybe some theological thing there. Somebody's probably written a PhD dissertation on finding wives at wells or something. I, don't, I haven't read it. But it happened, to, it happened to Jacob. It happened to Isaac. It happened to his son Jacob. I wonder if Moses was like, oh, I'll sit down by the well. Maybe I'll meet somebody here. That's what happens. He sits down by the well. And sure enough, comes along, not one woman, seven sisters. Seven sisters come along. And they're the daughters of a guy named Ruel. And it's going to get confusing in chapter 3, the next chapter, if you've been reading, you've seen this already, he's also called Jethro. And he actually has a third name that comes up too. So you've got to kind of keep those all together. Here he's called Ruel. He's a priest of Midian. I don't know what kind of priest he is, but there among the Midianites, he's the priest. And he has seven daughters, and they've brought their sheep to be watered at this well. But the sisters have trouble with the local shepherds. And so Moses plays the role of hero. He del- the, the, it says right there that he delivers them. He, he delivers them from the local shepherds. He gets the sheep watered. So the girls have the sheep all watered. They go back home. Their father, Ruel, is like, why are you guys home so early? That went really well today. They said, well, it's because of this Egyptian guy. They think he's an Egyptian. Because of this Egyptian guy, he saved us. This is what he did. He delivered us from the shepherds. And he goes, you got to invite that guy over. You can't leave him out by the well. So they invite him over to the house. He has a meal with the family. And then he ends up staying there. Verse 31 says, and Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And so you see this incredible story where God is always working ahead of the opposition. He's not reacting to what happenings, what's happening. He has a plan, and he has worked it all out. It is an incredible story. Moses has faced death 
from Pharaoh two times as a baby and then as a grown man. And both times, God has provided a way out. Twice he's done it. And so now Moses is out of Egypt. He's out of harm's way. And not only that, he's married. He's starting a family. He's got a beautiful baby boy. It's like this is a beautiful conclusion to Moses' story. And we can just kind of close it up and go, oh, that was wonderful. God can do anything. Except this is not Moses' story. This is not a story about Moses and how God can save him. And that's what God does. But this is God's story. And he's doing something much, much bigger. So you look at the next verse, verse 23. During those many days, while all this is playing out, Moses' story, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Can you tell what's going on? You, you don't even have to be that familiar with this kind of language. Like, what does it mean for God to remember? It's not like he forgot, but you can just tell God saw. He heard. He remembered. God knew. It's like, it's the, it's the next cliffhanger ending. God's going to do something. Oh, something's about to happen. Buckle up. That's why you got to keep going in the story. That's why you got to come back next week. That's why we're reading all the way through it. God is about to do something. You see what's happening here? This is that thing that Moses' story is foreshadowing Israel's story. So remember what happened when baby, little baby, three-month baby, three-month-old baby Moses was crying out in the basket. Back in verse 6, Exodus 2, 6 says, when she opened it, Pharaoh's daughter, when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. He was crying out. She took pity on him. And then she did something about it. She rescued him. And that's this picture of what's going to happen to the people of Israel. They're crying out. They're crying out. And God sees them. And he has pity on them. And now he's going to take action. And he's going to draw them out. Just like Moses was drawn out of the water. So we end on this cliffhanger for next week. That something's going to happen. That God has spent decades raising up a deliverer. He's, deliver. he's been working ahead of the enemy in these surprising ways. And now what's he going to do? Stay tuned for that. But, so you remember that story. And you go, okay, now I see. This is how God works. But what does that mean for a follower of Jesus today? That's what we need to figure out. Because if this is God's story, and if it's a story that doesn't just reveal what he did, but rather the story tells us who he is. You got to understand that about the story. This story that's been unfolding, I'm not just talking about Exodus 2, all the way back. It's not just a story of what God did. It's a story that reveals who he is. If you've been reading along through the story, you get into the plagues. We've just read through the plagues. If you're doing Live It Out, we've just read through the plagues. And I don't know if you noticed, but in there, God keeps telling Moses to say that he's doing this, that my name may be known. That's what God keeps saying, that my name may be known. And it doesn't just mean that people will be familiar with the name Yahweh. Like, oh, I recognize that name. I've heard that name before. It's not that. It's that his name, his, the full meaning of his name, his character would be known, that people would understand what he's like. That's what the Exodus story is doing. It's unveiling what is the God of the Israelites like. 
What's his character? What does he do? And this is what he does. He works ahead of his enemies as a rescuer. And so if that's true, if we know God is a rescuer and he rescues people and he's working ahead of his opposition, then what are the implications of that for us today? Three things I want to give you. One, the first is this, remember that God hears your cries. You've got to remember that God hears your cries. Whatever you're facing in life, whatever you're crying out for, it might not seem like he does, but God hears your cries. When I was in fifth grade, my teacher, Mr. Hunter, had some unusual practices. I've mentioned it once before. Um, I was kind of a squirrely fifth grader. He made a seatbelt out of rubber bands for me and strapped me to my chair in the classroom. I don't know if you could do that today, but that's what you did um, back then. So he made a seatbelt for me to remind me to remain seated in class because I would just get out of my chair. One other thing he would do with me is he would say, all right, Tim, you're doing push-ups. And he would have me, sometimes my friend who I was goofing around with in the back of the class, we'd come up to the front of the class and he would have us do push-ups. And we would always say, Mr. Hunter, how many do we have to do? He'd say, till I'm tired. And so we'd start doing push-ups. And he would step you know, away from us and, and he'd be teaching the class. And we'd be back behind him doing push-ups. And I'd be like, does he even know I'm back here? He forgot, I, you know, you start to feel like he forgot that I'm back here. So I just had a thing I would do, which was start to grunt a little bit, like, give that with each push-up. You can understand why I was the kid who had to do push-ups and get strapped to the chair, because that's the kind of thing I did. But I was like, I just want him to know that I'm here. Even if I have to keep doing push-ups, I just don't want him to forget about me. I'm not saying God is like Mr. Hunter, who punishes people, you know, puts them in tough situations just to make them suffer. But there is this idea that when you're suffering, if just somebody knows you know, like if just somebody's aware, some, the person who can do, about, do something about it is just aware of it, maybe they will act on your behalf and get you out of there. There's something about just knowing that your cries are heard. That's what we need to remember, that God hears our cries and that he is doing something about it. We may not see it now, but he is doing something about it. And it's important to see that in a story. Because you can hear a Bible verse about that, but it's different. Like if you just hear, if you just learn a verse, you know, in, in uh, John's gospel, it says Jesus came, she said that he came that, I might, that, that they might have life and have life to the full. That's a good verse to remember. It is. Or you might read Psalm 34. It says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed spirit. That's a good verse to know. But if you know those verses but you don't know the stories of God doing that actual thing, then it becomes very easy when you're suffering to say, God, this sure doesn't feel like life to the full. And you said that's what you came for. So where is it? Or you might say, God, this doesn't feel like you are near to me when I'm brokenhearted. It doesn't feel like you're saving the crushed spirit. But if you know the stories, then you know that your current circumstances don't always mean the reality of what God is doing. Remember, we talked about this last week. Dave said, confusing circumstances are not an indication of the final story. If God is working ahead of the opposition, then we might not see what he's doing right now, but he does hear our cry, and he is acting, and he will save us, and he will draw us out. It may not seem like he hears, but he does. He's working. His story plays out in his time. And for us, in the reality of life, in the moment, it can be very difficult. It can be very painful. But God sees you, 
and he hears your cries. So a couple of Psalms I just would point you to, Psalm 34 and Psalm 40. The Psalms are full of this kind of thing, but those are two of them that have been encouraging to me. Just read them. They get to this very idea that God hears our cries and that he is acting. Read them. They're not simple. They're not sanitized. They are real life, struggling in the moment, but knowing that God sees you, he hears your cries, and he is at work. The second thing, that's the first. Remember that God hears your cries. The second thing is this. Live with your eyes open to God's work in and around you. Live with your eyes open to it. Remember Dave said last week, this story showed us that we have to live with our eyes open to the real opposition that's, that's, that we face as God's people. We can't bury our heads in the sand. We shouldn't be surprised when we face opposition, but we also need to live with our eyes open to what God is doing. Like, what is he up to? To have, to have some wonder and imagination go, God, I know you can do anything. And sometimes you use the most difficult situations to do the most incredible things. So God, what might you be up to? We need to live with our eyes open to that. God has been working in advance. So God didn't panic when Pharaoh said, throw the babies, the baby boys into the river. God was like, hey, I got a way to do this. I've been planning it forever. Literally, I, I got a plan. Go ahead, throw them in the water. Put them in a basket. He's going he's gonna to be saved from that, and he's, I'm going to use him to, call, to draw my people out of slavery in Egypt. God was already working his plan ahead of the opposition. And, and sometimes it's really hard to do that. You try and live with your eyes open. Sometimes what we tend to do is we tend to look down at our circumstances, right? You kind of look down at what's around you. Where's the ground where I'm standing? Okay, God, how did I get here, and what are you doing? But I think if we're going to live with our eyes open to what God's doing, we got to look back as much as we look down. we got to look back and go, okay, God, what have you been doing? Like, okay, what's been happening this week? What's been happening this month? What's been happening this year? Where are you at work in that? Not just where I'm standing right now. You probably have stories of experiencing that. I know, I think of, I mean, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a famous story for Kara and I, like just between the two of us. I don't know if two people can have a famous story, but for us in our marriage, it's a famous story that when we had been married six months, I got fired from my job. I didn't get let go. I didn't get laid off. I got fired from my job. I felt like a failure. I can remember sitting in the darkness on the edge, like sitting in total darkness on the edge of our bed. We're newlyweds and six months married. Kara's sound asleep and I'm sitting on the edge of the bed just in tears, crying out to God because I'm a failure and I don't know what's going to happen next. And I'm telling you, Two weeks after that, we were going, oh, God knew this was going to happen. Because we could look back over the last six months. At, I mean, I could tell you the story sometimes of specific things God was doing. He was setting us up so that in that moment that came, that came about, not because God stuck us there, it came about through my, my foolishness, but God was taking care of things so that he had a way out for us. He'd been working ahead of the opposition. We just needed to look back to see it. That's the way that God works. We've got to have our eyes open to it. I was just talking with Jason, uh, with Jason Garrow, who's one of our uh, missionaries in Tanzania. I was just talking with him this week, and he was telling me a story that was the same kind of thing. They were in this tough spot. They didn't know what they were going to do, and all of a sudden, God delivered them, and he could look back and see, wait a second, God was working all along the way. As he looked back, he could see that God was moving. We've got to have our eyes open to that. So we know that God hears our cries. We've got to remember that. Even in the difficult circumstances of life, we've got to remember that he hears our cries. We've got to live with our eyes open to what he's doing. And the third thing is this. We've got to celebrate even in the hard stuff. We can do that. We can celebrate 
even in the hard stuff of life. And that, that might seem counterintuitive. You look at this and you go, well, the, the, the people of Israel, the Israelites are not celebrating. They're crying out because they're hurting. They're suffering. They're not celebrating in the hard stuff. But when you know the end of the story, that changes the way you view the circumstances. They didn't know the end of the story. Now, now, if they knew the story well, if they had paid attention, if they remembered what God had said to their forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, if, he knew the pro- if they knew the promises that he had made to them, if they remembered those, maybe they would have been different in their suffering. I don't know. But we know where the story is going. We know what God is up to, and so we can view it differently. I mean, don't you, when you read this and you go, you read the story and you go, oh, the people of Israel are, 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 are suffering as slaves in Egypt. You don't despair. You don't go, oh, my goodness. They're stuck. Moses is going to die. No, you know where the story goes. You go, oh, God is doing something. Man, that had to be hard to go through. That woman gave up her son, but God was doing something. He wasn't just going to leave things the way they were. That stirs like this idea that you can celebrate up in you. I, um, I got beat up once. Not when I was a kid, when I was an adult. And I don't mean like verbally beat up. I mean I got physically pummeled by somebody. I got hurt by them. And it, it, was, it hurt so bad. And believe it or not, it was while I was getting a massage. So that tells you how, <laughs> how tough I am, okay? Um, I had this weird neck thing happen a few years ago when we first moved to Tennessee. And in my neck and in my shoulder, it started to like tense up and tighten up. And for a couple days, I was walking, I was like C-3PO-ing around the office. Like I, I couldn't turn my neck or my, my head at all. And instead of it getting better each day, it was getting worse each day and tightening up. And I was like, I'm going to become immobilized by this. I'm going to be at home in bed. So somebody said, you got to have somebody work on that. So I went and got this therapeutic massage. And this woman pummeled me. And at one point, she's like, she's got all of her body weight on the point of her elbow in this spot in my back. And she's leaning on me and she's sort of like knocking the wind out of me. And I'm, I'm like laugh crying. Okay. (laughs) She's on top of me. I'm just going, (laughs) I don't know what she was thinking, but what I was thinking was, Oh man, this hurts so much, but it is hilarious that this is what's going to make me feel better. You know, like I cannot believe this is what I have to go through to feel better. But I knew like nobody else could do this to me. There was nothing, you know, like this is not just going to happen on its own. This is getting pummeled for a purpose. And so I knew something was happening. And I think that's a little bit like what Paul is pointing at in Romans 5 when he's encouraging these believers and he says, we can rejoice in our sufferings. Romans 5, 3, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit has been given to you. And the Holy Spirit is a reminder, is a promise, is, a, is proof of God's love for you. The cross is proof, is proof of God's love for you. And you, you look at the cross, you hear what the Spirit's saying to your heart, that God's love has been poured out to you. And you go, this story is going somewhere. I'm not suffering for nothing. God loves me. 
He will use this. He will do something with it. He will make something to the point where you can actually celebrate and go, oh man, God, this hurts. But I know you're up to something and I love that you're up to something. So we can actually celebrate even in the hard stuff of life. And I mean it, this is not just the power of positive thinking. This is recognizing reality. If this story is true, if this is how God works, then even if the, in the difficulties of life, he is working on something bigger and better, and that's something we can celebrate. And so we do. This is who God is. This is how he works. His rescue story is always ahead of the opposition. And what you'll see as you go through this story, it's not a story just about getting Moses safely to adulthood, but it's also not a story about getting Israel out of Egypt. That's not what the story is about. You look in Noah's life, in Abraham and Sarah's life, in Jacob's life, in Moses' life, in the life of the nation of Israel. God is unfolding this story over thousands of years, and he's working on a bigger rescue. He's working on a rescue plan where he himself comes to earth and lives among his people and shows the right way to live, the way that life is possible in him. And then he goes and he dies on a cross, and then he's raised from the dead so that this rescue story wouldn't be just for Moses, or just for his people, but that it would be for all of humanity, that everyone would have life available in this God who is always at work. That's the rescue story that's unfolding here, and this is just part of it. And so we got to immerse ourselves in the story. You want to remember those three things, you got to stay in the story. And so that's why we keep giving you the live it out thing. It's in your bulletin, it's on your phone, it's on the website, wherever you get it. You, you keep working through that. Do that this week. If you haven't done it, it's not too late. You're actually pretty familiar with the story up until now, so you don't have to do a ton of catch up. Just jump in and start doing those that little... You Using that tool each week, it's just to get you to engage with God. And you'll see some things. You'll see more than just the truth of a Bible verse. You'll get to know the story and you'll get to know the God who is behind the story and what he's like. If you get in his word every day, if you engage with him every day, you'll start to see what he's like through his story. That, that little tool will take you into the story every day. It'll prompt you to live with your eyes open to what God is doing. That's why we put those questions in there. One of the things I think you'll see, if you, if you, just, if you get into the story here, we're just getting to the part where the people of, of Israel are coming out of Egypt. And just pay attention. Like, pay attention to how often uh, something will happen. And there's like a pause in the action. And then it says, And God said to Moses, or, and God said to Moses and Aaron, just watch for that phrase. You will see that this is not a story that's just happening, but that God is always driving the action. Just watch for that. It's incredible. It's like, you read and you go, this is, I mean, like, this is not just things occurring in a place to certain people. It's like God is dictating what's going to happen. He says, he says something else and something happens. He says something else and something happens. He's the author of the story and he's at work all along the way. It's a beautiful thing. So what we're going to do is we're going to respond now to the God of the story. We're going to celebrate even in the hard times. And so that might mean a couple things. It might mean it's easy for you to sing with a loud voice. It might mean you need prayer for something. Whatever room you're in, um, 
we've got prayer teams that are, that are going to come out, folks from our prayer team who would love to pray with you and pray for you. But just remember, no matter where you're standing today, whether you're standing in the light of God's blessing and you're just feeling the warmth of what he's doing, or if you feel like you're standing in the shadows and in the mud, crying out in the pain of life, I'm telling you, God is he's way ahead of you. And he's way ahead of your opposition. And he hears your cries and he sees you and he is at work. And so we worship him for that. Would you pray with me? God, we need you. Whether we realize how, how desperate we are for you today or not, God, we need you. And we rejoice and we celebrate that you are alive and that you are at work and that your, your story has unfolded and it is unfolding. You're telling your story. You're writing it on our lives, God. So we worship you for that, uh, for the strength you bring. God, for the way that you lift us up, we want to lift you up. We want to worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.